We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with, and here's their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today won a national championship playing for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, and he played four years in the NHL for the Sabres, Whalers, and Rangers. He was also one of the leading scorers on the most iconic team in U.S. sports history, the 1980 Olympic hockey team. Over two weeks in Lake Placid, that miracle team gave us our greatest sporting moment, a 4-3 win over the Soviets. Two days later, my guest scored the gold versus Finland that clinched the gold medal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Rob McClanahan. Rob, welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, Rob. Um, Well, so what I like to do is, you know, kind of dig into an athlete's background, you know, a little bit about where they grew up, their high school years. Um, In your case, it's actually adds a lot to the story because one of the most iconic things about hockey in Minnesota is the state high school tournament and your senior year, you got to play in that. So um, you're from St. Paul, you went to Moundsview high school. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up years, how you got into hockey. Well, obviously a different era back in those days. Uh, I grew up in a family of five, four boys. And uh, I had a sister that was in between the uh, two. I had two older brothers and a sister and then a younger brother. So I was four out of five. We played sports seasonally. We didn't play anything 12 months a year. When the ice melted, we went on to baseball, tennis. We played soccer. Soccer was introduced to the country back when I was probably in junior high. And so we started playing. The one sport we didn't have in Minnesota in those days was lacrosse. I wish we would have had that. But with that said, we had a pond in the backyard that always was frozen by Thanksgiving. So we were always skating by Thanksgiving. Um, hockey was my favorite sport. It just, but it wasn't my only sport. And, and as I said, we went, we went from sport to sport and, and my parents, that was a, my parents were a big part of that. They wanted us to be exposed to everything, skiing and water skiing and sailing, you name it, we tried it. That's missing today, to be quite honest with you. And it, it frustrates me. I, I hate 12 months a year sport. The pros don't play their sport 12 months a year. They might train, but they don't play the sport. So I was lucky enough uh, to play on some really good youth teams. Um, 
back in, in those days, Minnesota would send their team to the national tournaments. And I had a Peewee team that went to the national tournament in International Falls, Minnesota. And we came in second. That same team in Bantams went to uh, St. Clair Shores, Michigan, to play in the national tournament. We ended up winning, beating the same team in Bantams that we lost to in the Peewees. So from there, I uh, went into Moundsview High School. And, and as you had mentioned, uh, we had some good teams. We didn't make it to the state until I was a senior. And that was probably one of my first really big setbacks. We were 24-0 going into the tournament. We played Richfield with a gentleman named Steve Kristoff, who was a member of uh, my teammate at the U and my teammate on the Olympic team. We outshot him 21-2 in the first period, and it was 1-1, and we ended up losing 4-3. That was that one it still eats at me a little bit to this day. And Christoph tells me that every, every time I see him. So um, <laughs> state tournament was fabulous. It was, it's, and it's bigger today than it was when I played, but it's, I had the opportunity to coach, uh, I'm coaching a, the Blake high school boys team. And we made it to the state tournament uh, the year, the COVID year. Uh, and we came in third and I guarantee you those kids will, they will remember it for the rest of their lives. It's a big deal. And hockey in Minnesota is like uh, football in Texas or basketball in Indiana. It's a big deal. Yeah. I, I can tell people I, I went to high school in Minnesota and not only do the kids whose teams are in the tournament take off kids across the state take oh, yeah. off. Yeah. People don't go to work those days. It's televised statewide. It is unbelievable. It's um, a big deal. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. Um, so you're so you're coming out of Mountain View, and to your point, in addition to playing hockey, uh, where you're one of the top players in the state, you're also a star soccer player and tennis player. So you are a year-round athlete. Um, and when it's coming time to pick a college, you know, obviously you got the University of Minnesota right down the road, and Herb Brooks. That year, '76, they're winning their second national title. Um, but you're also looking at other schools. You're looking at Michigan Tech and, and some other schools. What was what was kind of the thought process as you were going about choosing ultimately Minnesota? A lot of people don't realize it at the time, but Michigan Tech was as good a hockey program as any other program in the country. And so I was very serious about going there. Uh, I also looked at Michigan. Uh, I was recruited by Wisconsin, Harvard, North Dakota. I just said, no, thank you. And then I went to uh, the Herbie had a recruiting weekend where he brought in all of the recruits at the same time with the parents. And I knew all the guys on the team. I played against a couple of the guys when, you know, growing up, played with TJ Gorns on the same team. And -hmm. after that weekend in Minnesota, I knew where I was going to go. It just, it was, it was over. And so I had committed to the U and, and the rest is history. And it was, um, you know, it was a good three years. We had, we had a good run. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I mean, obviously, you know, part of this interview will build towards the Olympic team, your first year and you're, you're, you know, a producer right off the bat for, for the team. Uh, your first year, you guys actually have a losing record. Interestingly, the, the national champ that year is Wisconsin and two yeah. of their stars are Mark Johnson and Bob Suter, who will be on your Olympic team. The next year, you guys are pretty good. Um, BU wins the national title on that team is, is Jim Craig, Dave Silk, uh, Jack O'Callaghan, Aruzioni had already graduated. And then your senior year, like we talked about, uh, you win the national title. You beat North Dakota, which has Dave Christian on the team. Eight of the guys who would, who would, who would be on that Olympic team, you know, there's 20 guys on the team. Eight of the 20 are on that team, uh, that Minnesota team that wins the national title. 
after they won it in 76, uh, my freshman year, we, we were, I think he brought in 10 or 12 freshmen. Uh, they lost a lot of players and we were young and inexperienced. I remember playing the first game against North Dakota and they had a 20 year old freshman. I mean, uh, and he had played two years of junior in Canada and, and I couldn't believe how good he was. And this is the beginning of the year, but by the end of the year, you know, we had caught up to players like that. Uh, the one thing I will tell you is freshman year, the, the, the power play that the university of Wisconsin had that year in the 76, 77 was as good a power play as I've ever seen at any level. It was spectacular. You had, you had uh, Mark Johnson, Mike Eves, John Taft, Craig Norwich, who played at Edina high school. He ran that power play and Steve Alley. And, and I think, I believe their execution rate was somewhere around 40, 45%. It was that good. And they were just, uh, you, if you got a penalty against Wisconsin, you were in trouble. So from there, a uh, quick story, if I may, my freshman year, we went up to um, Lake Superior State, which at the time was trying to become a division one team. They weren't D1 at the time. And I don't know, Herbie had been convinced to schedule a game and we went up there and we lost four to three. It was just a one game affair. And we came back on Sunday and we got to Williams Arena and Herbie told us to go down and get our gear on. And so Sunday afternoon, we got on the ice and three and a half hours later, we got off. And all we did were what we call Herbies, which are lightning drills. We did that for three and a half hours. They cleaned the ice once. So Monday, we normally would hit the ice for practice at 2.30. Well, we got on at 2.30 and we didn't get off until 6.15. And all we did were Herbies. And Tuesday, same thing, on the ice at, at 2.30, off at 6.15. And, and Tommy Vanelli was an alternate captain that year. And I remember him saying, I probably on Monday, he just used to say, don't let this bastard beat you. Uh, and, you know, nobody was happy, but we didn't see a puck for three days. We skated, we did Herbies for 10, 11 hours. And I don't remember who we played the next weekend, but I'm sure we just, they didn't hold a chance to beat us. So um, that was a lesson, a hard lesson learned. <laughs> you better show up. So when yeah. we skated, jumping ahead a little bit, when we skated that one time in Norway, uh, early in the season of the Olympic year, uh, we skated for an hour after game. And I'm not saying it wasn't hard, but it was nothing compared to what we had done four years ago or three years prior to that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because you it, what you just said, you said, you know, you don't know who you played that next week when you were at the U, but, you know, you're sure you laid it on them. I looked up that game against Norway. Going into that game, your team, it was kind of the early stages of your exhibition schedule. You were 6-2-1, and one, right? So you guys were yeah. playing pretty good hockey. He's obviously not happy with the effort. He skates you hard that night. You play the next day against yeah. the same team. You yeah. win nine nothing. Yeah. I mean, you crushed them, and that was after a night of skating. So, like he—he he obviously there was a method to the madness, right? Another side note on that: I, I believe uh, Buzzy Snyder and Mike Ramsey had been kicked out of the game for uh, who knows what, but they were—they'd been kicked out and they had undressed and gotten their street clothes on. And when they saw us starting to skate, they—they they went down into the locker room to put their gear back on. And Craig Patrick said, don't just forget it. Don't bother. And so they didn't end up skating, but that just shows you candidly, everybody on that team, that's the kind of teammates they were and are. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, so, so you guys win the national title and this is interesting too. So, I mean, obviously on the international stage, the world ice hockey championships are a big deal. Um, and they fall at a funny time of the year. The Soviets wanted, it was going to be in Moscow in 79. This is your junior year. You're a couple of weeks removed from a national title. 
And uh, it's always a funny time, though, because it's early April. So you're not going to get a lot of NHL guys. Now, there aren't a lot of American NHL guys anyway, but the Canadians, you'll get guys whose teams don't qualify for the NHL playoffs. So, for instance, Marcel Dion is in the 79 championships. You guys go. So he came in late. He didn't come in right away. He flew in. He was probably a week Three to seven days after the tournament had started, Marcel Dion came in. I think it, the LA Kings had been eliminated, and that's when he showed up. He didn't come right away. Okay, oh, so that's interesting. Yeah, so so he comes in, and what's fascinating, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this tournament. So it's it's like I said, it's right on the heels of winning the national title. It's a bunch of college guys for sure, but then there's also like some you know U.S. born pros like Craig Patrick is on the team yeah. as a player. Like a few months later, would become the assistant, um, and Dion criticizes North American hockey while he's there and basically says the media needs to report on this, that, you know, the beauty of the European style of play, there are no fights. The focus is on talent. And he actually says, there are so many idiots who run hockey. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. We have to tell them. And it's interesting because the U S doesn't do well. You guys come in seventh out of eight teams. Um, And Dion obviously is Canadian. So, you know, he could care less about the Americans, I'm sure, but it is interesting. Herb Brooks is the coach. And you kind of wonder, was he listening? Because my guess is that the style of play that you guys employed in the Olympics just a few months later was different than what you were doing at the world, the world championships in Moscow. I don't, you, you tell me. Oh, for sure. Uh, Herbie, Herb, you could label Herbie as a mad scientist. Um, he would, he would try and input in, he would put in drills at the U that he would later use on the Olympic team in terms of interchanging positions and constant movement and, and instead of stops and starts, just a tight circle. So we were always moving. So he would, he, he would do that with us at the U. Um, I didn't know Marcel Dion had said that. That's interesting because he, he wasn't wrong. Uh, yeah. The European style play. Now the rinks over there were so much bigger that you, it was hard to be a physical team. You couldn't be physical because it was just too big. And so Herbie, when Herbie picked the team, we had a practice the next day. He said a couple, three things. He said, um, we may not be the best team in the Olympic tournament, but we'll be the best conditioned team. He said, you guys, because of the style we're going to play, you will improve more in the next six months than you have your entire lives. We're not going to dump the puck in. We're going to possess the puck. You can't score without possession. You can't, it's like, he said, it's like football. If you don't have the ball, you're not going to score touchdowns. It's like basketball. If you, if you don't have the ball, you're not going to score baskets. Well, hockey's the same way. You're not going to score a goal without the puck. We're not dumping the puck in. And that was music to ours. And the other thing he said is everybody's involved. So if a defenseman decided to go up and join the, flip, the play, then one of the forwards had to make sure and back him up. And they were encouraged to to be creative and be aggressive offensively when we had clear possession of the puck. And in all honesty, Rich, it was the most fun year I've ever had playing hockey. It was hmm. awesome. It was hard, really hard, but yeah. it was fun. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And, and Herb, Herb is the coach on that, uh, the world hockey championship. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that obviously starts and ends in April. And then he's picked over the summer to become the Olympic coach for, you know, for the following year for 1980. And I know at least one coach had turned it down. I think it was, I think it was Parker at BU. I might Parker, have Parker. I think Bill Cleary might've turned it down as well. Okay. At Harvard. Okay. Yeah. 
So, so, so here you are, you've played for the man for three years and you've won with him for sure. Um, but are you, when you hear that he's going to be the Olympic coach, are you thinking, okay, cool. I know how to play for this guy. Are you thinking, oh boy, this, this could be rough. No, um, I, I didn't. Herbie was, was straightforward with, at least with me. I think he was with everybody. Um, there were several guys that were told you you're on the team even before the trots, Kenny Morrow, uh, Mark Johnson, they were for sure told, I think Jack O'Callaghan too, but it doesn't matter. There were a handful of guys that were said, you try out, you're on the team. You just come in and shape. Right. I was not one of those. Uh, as a matter, you know, I, I made the team. I, I was, I was in really good shape. I mean, I, I candidly, I earned, I earned the spot, but when the lineups came out, when we went to Europe to start the season, I was a fourth liner hmm. and, um, that didn't change until after we got back from Europe. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's one of, one of the, you know, whether you're, you know, reading books about it or reading articles, watching the movie, watching documentaries, you know, there's obviously tons of information on the team. One of the, you know, recurring themes is getting down to those last couple of spots. And, you know, I do wonder, you know, obviously he makes a big deal of, you know, Ruzioni, you know, the captain of the team is kind of on the bubble right up until the end. At what point, and, and I know that every player is different. At what point did you kind of feel like, all right, I'm definitely making this team, whether I'm first or third line, whatever, I'll have to work that out. But when did you feel secure? So coming back from Europe, I did two things happen. Um, I was originally given number seven, which was my number at the University of Minnesota. I didn't like the number. I just didn't like it. And I made a request for a number change and they gave me a list of options and I chose 24. So it gave me a new lease on life mentally and, and, you know, psychologically. Um, also, uh, Herbie put me on a line with Mark for a couple of games and we, Mark Johnson, and we clicked right away. I mean, we just, we clicked and he kept us together pretty much the rest of the year. He would rotate. He rotated the right wings and we played eight games in the Olympics. I believe I had three different right wings. I had David Silk. Silky ended up playing with us at the end. I had Christoph for a game. I had Strobel was a right wing for a game and then, and Silky. So he kept the conehead line together the whole time. Anyway, so those two things were, were significant in my season. And, and from there, Herbie had player meetings, I believe twice before the Olympics, probably sometime in December. And then right before the, you know, before the Olympics and the, the meeting in December, I had kind of established myself by then. And Herbie said, you just keep playing the way you're playing. You're on the team. And so, and I had developed a huge amount of confidence as you had mentioned earlier. I mean, I, I was second leading scorer and, and uh, Mark and I were really good together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 your reputation was you were probably the best two way forward in college hockey at that time. And obviously you and Johnson worked well together right away. I mean, even in the exhibition season, which was over 60 games, you guys were one, two in scoring. Yeah. And then, and then in the Olympics, the two of you, along with like Bud Schneider and Christian right. were the scorers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, obviously, you know, and, and Herb was smart enough to figure that out pretty quickly, um, you know, to keep you guys together. Um, I am curious, the, at least the way it's depicted, the tryouts in Colorado that summer, you know, typically you're thinking there's going to be 80 or 90 guys, whatever the number is coming in. 
And he picks the team, basically, at least the traveling team, the 25 or 26 guys in a couple hours. Is that how that went down? No, was- no not at all. It was, right. two week, it was two weeks. So okay. that's one thing that's different in the movie. Uh, in, in reality, uh, it was a two-week tryout. We had, there were four teams. There was a Minnesota team, an Eastern team, a Midwest team, and an at-large team. Hmm. And we had a round-robin tournament. And on the off days, we would practice and we would be tested. There's a gentleman named Cardiac Jack, Jack Blatherwick, uh, a physiologist who had Herbie's ear. And he is... One of the few people Herbie actually listened to regarding training. And instead of just skating us that we're dead, he introduced uh, interval training hmm. and dry land training. That was unheard of in those days. And so we did some, we did that stuff and it's relative to what they do today. It was archaic, but it was in those days, it was uh, completely new to us. And as I mentioned, we were in by far the best shape of any team in the tournament, I was in the best shape of my life. And it was because of that training. So there were 84 players Hmm. that tried out and we, it was two weeks. And then after the last day of of tryouts, it was midnight and we're in a room with, you know, grade school, school desks. And Herbie sat up there and he said, I'm going to list 26 players. If you're, when you hear your name called, you get up and go to this room behind me and wait there. He said, if you, if your name isn't called after I call 26 and I'm done with meeting with my team, I will stay up as long as I need to, to talk to every single one of you and explain why you weren't selected. Hmm. So he started listing names and I mean, it was a grueling two weeks. It was tough. Um, And, you know, intense again, as I mentioned, there were guys that knew that like Mark Johnson was sick the whole time. He didn't even play, but he, Nobody would ever argue that he shouldn't have been on the team. He was our Magic Johnson. There's no question. But I, right. I had to earn it. And so um, he'd gone through – now, I'd played for Herbie for three years at the U, and I thought I had some understanding of how he operated. Well, it wasn't geographic. It wasn't, um, you know, by age. There was no rhyme or reason as to whom he called off. And I was sitting – to Neil Broughton's right, and I about two-thirds of the roster had been named, and neither Neil nor I had been called. We looked at each other and rolled our eyes and basically said, WTF. And then shortly after that, Neil's name was called, and I was called right behind him. And then you had to get up and stay composed because there's 60 guys behind you who aren't selected, and you don't want to look like a complete jerk. But once we got through the door in that back room, for, for Rob McClanahan, that was as big a deal as winning a gold medal because I, I wasn't guaranteed a spot. I had to earn it, and I, and I did that, and it, it validated what I did. I mean, there's a phrase that people use in, in the work industry, plan the work and work the plan. I had a workout plan, and I, I, I trained, and, and it paid off, mm-hmm. and it just – like I said, I'm as proud of that as I am having won a gold medal. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm curious about something because because one of the things that you know you often read about, uh, you know, kind of the way Herb's mind was working was he knew he had to pull together this disparate group of guys. I mean, there's a, 12 guys from Minnesota, nine who went to the U and played for him, and three others, um, four guys from Boston, 
couple guys from Wisconsin, a couple guys from Bowling Green, uh, who are both actually from Michigan. Yep. I pulled them all together. And obviously the, the very simplistic way to look at it is he, he wanted you guys to bond against him and that would bond you guys together. I'm curious about one thing, taking a big step backwards. When you were at Minnesota, where the team, I mean, to this day is famously almost always Minnesotans, but there's a difference in the state of Minnesota. The Twin Cities are different than the Iron Range and Duluth yep. and up north. Did he ever, you know, kind of do that with you guys at the U, kind of to try to get the Iron Rangers and the Twin City guys bonded, or was that not as, you know, not as necessary? Herbie was, yeah, it was always Herbie against the team. Herbie okay. was not a warm and fuzzy guy. Right. Uh, he didn't, he was a man of few words. He didn't say a lot, at least right. not to me. Um, he just, he was a taskmaster. He just, and he actually softened and became a little more user-friendly on the Olympic team. And he did even more so in the pros because I played for him in New York. And he, for sure, when he coached the 2002 uh, Olympic team, he was a completely different coach than he had been at the U. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, Herbie was a student of the game for sure. And he was a sponge in many respects. And one of the ways he realized he couldn't coach that way and be successful and keep a job and that's one of the reasons he was so good but um he was just really hard to play for i mean i'd play for him tomorrow if if, you know if the opportunity was there but it 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 wasn't for the faint of heart right i I read a quote from dave silk he said something like that that I don't know if he was talking to Herb or what it was, but Herb said to him, the greatest compliment I can give you is award you a Jersey. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, yeah, you may, it's like, okay, I get it. Um, it's a different era. You know, it, it, the kid, this isn't being critical of kids today. It's, it's, you can't coach the way Herbie coached. Right. And, and you can still be firm today. You can, you can be a disciplinarian, but you have to have a, there's got to be a side of you that that embraces the players in a way that Herbie didn't do. Yeah. And so 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 the team is picked and you guys, you know, basically go on this barnstorming tour and you're playing a couple of NHL teams. You're playing a bunch of collegiate teams. You're playing in Europe against various national and club teams. You're playing home and aways with basically the entire CHL, which is like yep. high level minor league hockey. That was a great great idea that Herbie came up with. I mean, that, that was fabulous because all those games counted against those for those teams in their standings. Okay. They weren't exhibitions. They were legit games that mattered to those teams. And I believe we went 16 and two or something like that. Okay. So they're putting their best foot forward. They're not. Yeah, yeah. It mattered to them for sure. Yeah. That's huge. And, and, and Oh, by the way, of the 60 plus games, like 48 are on the road. So yeah. you're forced to bond together. Yeah. And interestingly, I read, and, and again, just you know, from afar, this kind of surprised me, especially because he's dealing with mostly college-age kids. Uh, as tough as he was on the ice, in practice, off ice, you know, all that stuff, in terms of like beyond the hockey, he was very hands-off, no curfew. Um, you know, you guys were kind of left to your own device at that point. Is that, is that accurate? I don't remember if we ever had curfews. Um, anybody worth their salt would take care of themselves. So yeah. if, you, if you ended up going out all the time, it would show up on the ice. Right. And, and ice time was his 
that was that was the leverage right there. Yeah, yeah. If you're tired, tough. you play like crap. You're not going to play. Yeah, that's cool. And so, and then there's a there's a, a pre-Olympic tournament at Lake Placid that you guys win. Yes, but outside of the USA and one or two other teams, most of them are sending their B teams. So on the one hand, you want to win it because you don't want yeah. to not win that. But on the other hand, obviously you're not going to read too much into it. Um, what was, you know, what was that like as the team is getting, you know, kind of, you're getting closer and closer. Now you're on the ice up in Lake Placid, granted two months early, but um, you know, what was that like? It was great. It was, it was fabulous. That's when we had the Christmas party and her, we gave Herbie the name, the Ayatollah, gave him a whip as a Christmas gift. Um, winning the tournament was a big deal. I don't care if it was the Soviet B team or not. It was a big deal. It just continued to build our confidence. We still had several months before, or maybe a month and a half before the Olympics. So we were still working on, on getting used to the system, the style of play Herbie wanted us to use and the, the free flowing and the creative stuff we were still developing and our skills were still developing. I mean, it was, we were still getting to know each other. So winning that and continuing to be successful was a very big deal. Yeah. And, and one thing that I have to point out, cause I know that this is part, I mean, the, the beauty of the movie is that it's, it is, I know that, you know, a lot of the players were used as consultants and they tried to be as factually accurate as possible, but obviously trying to tie a year into two hours is impossible. So yep. you take some license. One big license they took was, I know that there was, some hostility between the BU guys and the Minnesota guys yeah. from the 76 title team uh, championship game. And they have, you know, you and uh, O'Callaghan, you know, go at it on the ice. But the reality is in that 76 game, you were a senior in high school. That's correct. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah. When you're watching the movie, are you watching going, what the hell are they doing to me here? So Gavin O'Connor was the director of the movie and he, he explained it in this way. He said, you, as you just mentioned, you have two hours to tell a story and I had to come up with an idea that explained the the um, dislike that the Boston players had for Minnesota and, and what the foundation of that was. And he came up with this. I don't know why he picked me. He could have picked Phil Vercota. He could have picked up Billy Baker or Jan. You know, he could have. Those guys were actually in that game. Yes, they were. Yes, they yeah. were. But he, he chose me and that's fine. And so that fight never occurred. But the animosity that existed between the BU players in Minnesota was very real. It wasn't real by the time December hit, but it was very real at the at the beginning of the year. We just didn't care for each other. Yeah. I mean, I'm picturing like when you guys are like going into hotels or, you know, driving to and from the rink and stuff, it's the Minnesota guys. It's the, you know, you know, people are kind of hyped off. And then just was it just that relentless travel and game after game after game and, and you know, playing for Herb that it started to come together? The way it broke down, it started in Norway when we tied Norway and we skated for an hour after the game. And that was the beginning of Herb against us. Right. And that's what he was trying to create. He was trying to break down the, the barrier of Boston, Minnesota and create the barrier of us versus Herbie. Right. And so that was the beginning of it. And, and um, you know, it, it also became Herbie would run practices and he'd, He'd uh, he'd have his whistle in his mouth and he'd be waving his arms and he'd mumble a drill that the guys in Minnesota probably had done because we were his guinea pigs there. But every once in a while, Herbie would come up with a drill that we had not heard. And we would stand there, you know, like a deer in headlights, not having a clue of where to go or what to do. 
And but the, everybody else used to follow the guys from Minnesota because we were supposed to know what to do. Well, one time I don't remember what time of year it was before January. Herbie was at the same old St. Paul Auditorium. He did that. He blew his whistle, waved his arms, mumbled something, and we stood and had no idea. And he flipped out. He threw a stick up into the stands. He said, "That's it. Cancel's done. Get off the ice." Hell, if we had known that, we would have done this a lot earlier in the season if we could get out of practice. <laughs> That's great. That's funny. Yeah, that, that that is a great scene in the movie where he's like drawing the play on the, on the plexiglass. So, Nobody's, he skates away and people are like, what the hell is he talking about? Now, here's Kurt Russell. That's exactly right. But here's Kurt Russell. To show you how good he was, the, the movements that Kurt Russell had were unbelievable and very similar to Herbie. Now, Kurt Russell isn't left-handed. Kurt Russell is right-handed. But if you watch in the movie, he's doing everything with his left hand. As a matter of fact, uh, there were six of us that flew out to Vancouver uh, as they were shooting the movie. It was O'Callaghan, Aruzioni, uh, Buzzy Snyder, uh, and myself. Maybe there was only five of us. But um, And we had seen the movie the night before. And then we were doing these press junkets to promote the movie five minute little pieces with writers from all over the country. And we broke for lunch and Kurt Russell was sitting to my left and he was eating lunch and he was right-handed. And I did the old double take. Wait, you're right-handed. Yeah. What's the big deal. Now, the next time you watch the movie, everything he did is left-handed. And he did one other thing during the practice, we were all lined up on the goal line and he skate, Herbie used to skate by and he'd be talking about something and he did something with his stick. Kurt Russell did. Herbie used to always do. Really? And it was just bone, to me, it was bone chilling. It was incredible. So his portrayal of, of Herbie, I think, in my view, was exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it, when, and, you know, especially when you watch that speech, which we'll talk about in a second, just like the cadence when you, you know, you hear him in an interview and then you see uh, Kurt Russell do the speech, you know, before yeah. the Russia game, it just, it's, it's unbelievable. Like you feel like you're watching her. Um, so, and then, and then as that team comes to get, well, so in addition to carrying 26 guys, and I know he's like slowly letting a few guys go and it's getting down, but then at different times, he's bringing he bring in, brings in Neil Broughton's younger brother, Aaron, Aaron, yeah, and Tim Herrera, you know, who are very good players for, you know, him at the U but so it's just like, it's just not only are there 26 guys getting down to 20, he's bringing in ringers. Um, and, and, you know, famously in the movie, there's the scene where a handful of you to include you talk to him outside of bus. I think it's after a game at Harvard. It was in Milwaukee. It was in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. And, and that, that was actually, that's a very accurate scene. And there was another player, Donnie Waddell, who's the GM of, uh, of Carolina right now. Um, okay. Donnie Waddell played for us for a little bit too. So Timmy Har and Aaron Broughton were there that night. And we went out. I wasn't one of the guys that went out, but there was a group that went out and said, Herbie, this is BS. This, you know, we've been busting our ass all year long. And now you bring these guys in and it's just not right. Yeah. And Herbie heard what he wanted to hear. And part of it was he heard the we. It, it was the we, not the me. And and I think that was, you know, for him, it was a turning point that he had the team he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Um, and so then you guys, as and, and, you know, now you're coming down to the, uh, to the home stretch and you've got the game and it's amazing. I went back and looked at the calendar. It is amazing. Your first game in the Olympics is a Tuesday night against Sweden. You play Saturday night 
in Madison Square Garden in New York City against the Russian team, the A team. And I mean, between that game and Tuesday, you've got to get up to Lake Placid and you've got to check in and, you know, get your legs and all that stuff. But he schedules a game against the Russian A team on the Saturday night. And and I wonder, is it just one of those things like, yeah, hey, we schedule and that's that. Or did he kind of anticipate that what would happen would happen and that would soften them up for later? Like, what do you think the thinking was there or was it just straightforward? I just want to play the Russians. Well, whatever I would say would be strictly speculation because I'd never really talked to Herbie about his mindset there. Um, it gave us an idea what we had to face, and it was truly men against the boys. It was like, you know, um, it's like a, it's like the University of Minnesota playing a Division three hockey team. Right. Uh, it was not even close. Al Michaels tells a very good story about his experience, and, and he talks about that game, and it it was 10 to three, but it wasn't that close. And, and as a matter of fact, the opening faceoff, I, I went up to Mark Johnson. And I said, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, we, we were in awe of them too, is, is part of it. So yeah, did that play a role? Sure it did. Um, and then during the Olympic tournament, the Soviets were flat. But before that, so you talk about we had to play uh, on February 9th, and then our first game, our opening game was February 12th. Well, we got back to Lake Placid, and Herbie had a team meeting, and he talked about a couple of things, and he said, there's nothing that Herbie did that wasn't planned, nothing. So he went through the scenario. He said, if we play at the top of our game and get some breaks, we can win a bronze. If we play at the top of our game and get all the breaks, we can win a silver. Forget the gold. The Soviets have the gold. That's exactly what he said. But as the tournament progressed, we, the Soviets had to come from behind to beat Canada in their pool play. They had to come from behind to beat Finland. And so throughout the tournament, after we got through the, our most important games were the first two games, the game we tied Sweden and then the game we destroyed the Czechs. The Czechs were the second ranked team in the world and we destroyed them. Uh, and th- I would argue that that's conditioning as much as anything. We just, we played very well. And obviously the crowd was, helped us but so once we got through the first two games then it was just a matter of taking care of business and um herbie just started he he compared uh mikhailov to stan laurel of laurel and hardy and if you look at the pictures he's not far off and so he would try to he he did that to try to loosen us up and uh, relax a little bit and um, I don't know if it worked, but, uh, you know, by the time we got to that game, we were still as nervous as all get up, but we also knew we had, we had a chance. Yeah. Well, why go out there if you don't have a chance? So we had a chance. So that, that was that. And then, um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. And, and a couple of questions. So the Sweden game is the first game. And they are, you know, along with the Czech and, the Czech, well, Czechoslovakia back then and the Russians, they're probably the three medal favorites, right? Them, maybe Finland. Um, in fact, I saw, and I couldn't believe I was watching it. I saw some footage of Herb in Lake Placid being interviewed of, you know, what he thought everybody's chances were. And he was like, well, the Soviets are the greatest team in the world. So they win gold. And the Czechs and the Swedes, those are the next two best. Yep. And then he kind of throws us in with like West Germany and Finland. I mean, it was just, it was fascinating. Again, I'm sure, you know, there was a method to what he was doing for sure. Um, But um, in the Sweden game, you guys are down one, nothing after the first period you've, you've taken uh, uh, basically you have a a thigh contusion 
and Doc has told you to to you're done for the night. I was done. Yeah, done. Any other time of year, I would have been done. I would have been out. I would have not played any other game. Um, right. So, so, so as to be able to you know preserve yourself for the next game. Obviously, you know, anybody who's, you know, read up on it or seen the movie or whatever, there's a huge confrontation. He challenges you. You rise up. You get in his face. I read later, Ruzioni was like, great, we're one period into the Olympics and we're already imploding. Um, <laughs> but, but again, some truth you know, to that. Yeah. And, but, but with that, you guys go out in the second period and you get one. And now it's tied. And then obviously with, you know, under a minute to go, Billy Baker scores one from the point and you guys tie. And that's just a huge moment. But what was that like? I mean, this is one of the most, this is the most iconic team in, in American sports <clears throat> history. And you're involved in one of the big moments that's like a turning point. What, what's that like for you? And what was that moment like? I was shocked. I was shocked. You know, I've, I've never sandbagged anything in my life. And he knew that. Yeah. Um, I had seen him challenge Joe Micheletti at the U when he was hurt one time. I, I saw him challenge Tommy Vanelli in the same kind of situation, both at the University of Minnesota, but I never envisioned that he would do it to me. And what's ironic is, is I did get up and in the movie where, you know, we're face to face and I was, I was this close to throwing a punch. And as I was rearing back to throw a punch, my teammates grabbed me and Herbie turned and walked out. What they didn't show is I walked out into the hallway with Herbie and we started yelling again outside. Now Sweden's locker room was right next to ours. And as, as you said, what Rizzo said, here we are. It's the first period of the first game. The opening ceremonies weren't until the next day. And Herbie and I are going at it. And they, we, the U.S. team has lost their marbles. Uh, I've never, I never did take the opportunity or the chance. And I never talked to Herbie about it. And now it's obviously too late. But um, I'm not happy about it. But I can't argue with the results. You know, yeah. it, it, it got us away from maybe being nervous coming together as a team. And, and I, that was probably his, his, the reason he did that. Um, but I was a shell. I mean, I, I was a gimp, but I managed to play through and, and I, I am, I, you know, I, I, I'm, all I did was when I wasn't at the ice rink, I was in a waist deep 45 degree whirlpool and I was doing exercises to rehab and get my uh, range of motion and to, to, to reduce the, um, you know, the contusion, it was, it was tough. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's funny on this show, I've, I've interviewed among others, a couple of guys who played for Vince Lombardi. And I remember hearing the story that Paul Horning, who was one of his guys, right. Lombardi loved Horning. He was kind of everything that, that Vince wasn't. Um, but early on, he would yell at Bart Starr all the time. And Horning basically went to him and said, stop yelling at him because you, you're eroding his credibility in front of the rest of the team. Yell at yeah. me. You know, I can take it. And you'll send the message through me. I don't care. And everybody, <clears throat> everybody else will get the point. And I, you know, when I, when I read that story, I thought, I bet you he knew he could do that with you as much as it might've pissed you off, but like <laughs> the rest of the team, like, let's go and look what happened. Yeah. He might've picked on me a little bit, but yeah. And, and he knew he'd get the result. You know, he knew you could take it and he knew that everybody else would, you know, respond um, is, is one guy's observation. Um, and yeah, that Czechoslovakia game was huge. I mean, that was the one I remember, you know, I was, I was in middle school at the time and I remember thinking, oh my God, like this, this is a thunderbolt. Yep. Um, and, and obviously Norway, Romania, they're, they're not great teams. West Germany was an interesting one. You guys are down two nothing to them yep. and you, you guys start to come back and you score ultimately the game winner. You had two game winners out of six game, six wins. 
Um, you get that one. When you guys were on the bench, and obviously famously six of the seven games, you had to come from behind. Was there any anxiousness on the bench, nervousness? Or was it like, just play the game. We got this. We'll, you know, we know what we're West doing. West Germany was a unique situation because they all they had always had a history of playing the U.S. tough. Okay. I think, as a matter of fact, this year in the World Tournament, they beat the U.S. in the semis of the World Tournament. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. That, that obviously this year wasn't West Germany, it was Germany. But, but West Germany had always given the U.S. team troubles. I don't know why, but it, uh, I think Rizzo said that and Herbie mentioned it. So we were aware, you know, it's our last game. We had to, you know, we come out flat. We always gave up an early goal. It was always just one of those things. I'd rather, you know, I think the goals for and against in our first period, the ratio was probably one-to-one -one in the overall tournament, but I would say the ratio of goals for versus goals against in the third period for us was four or five to one. Yeah. And that goes back to the conditioning aspect and, and, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. It's all what, it's all part of what Herbie was all about, but um, we knew West Germany could play tough and maybe we fell into that trap a little bit, but we worked our way through and you know, you got to play three periods. Yeah. And that's what we did. Yeah. And then, and then obviously that sets up the game against the Soviet union. And one thing that I think is fascinating, and I, I don't think people fully appreciate it the way the Olympics worked then was you had the two, the two groups, the top two teams in each group after round robin play advance, and they create new standings of the three teams that you'll be playing. The one you've already played, so in your case, Sweden, it's a tie, so you each had one point, and then you'll play Russia and Finland. No matter what, doesn't matter whoever had won, you know, each of the games. It didn't matter. Correct. You were playing Finland the second time, and there was a very real possibility based on. If the Soviet Union and Sweden tied, and if you lost, say, three to one to Finland, both of which were plausible, you guys don't win a medal, even though you've Correct. beaten the Soviet Union. Um, no. They cha didn't. They've changed it because of that. They changed the, the way they structured it so that they now have a true gold medal game. Yeah. Um, but you're right. If we had lost to the Finns, we would have gotten zero. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing when you look back at it. So, so the game against Russia. Um, you, so tell me about, I mean, it's, it's probably the most iconic speech in American sports history. Tell me about that moment. You're in the locker room. You guys are probably nervous as hell. Um, tell me about when he walks in. I, I, I gotta be honest with you, Rich. And I think I speak for almost everybody on the team. I don't remember the speech. <laughs> I, I really, I'm, I'm sure he did that. I, Herbie always had a speech. He always was prepared pregame speech to get the team ready, to, to have their focus. I just don't remember what he said. And, and I'm telling you, everybody on the team, we get together in Lake Placid for a fantasy camp every year, and we talk about this. I Nobody remembers it. But we had that young kid, I can't remember his name, who did a fabulous job uh, you know, doing it when he was about 12 years old, uh, impersonating Herbie. It's the her the speech I remember was the speech before the Finland game. Which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't say it on public TV, but um you can say it here though. <laughs> Herbie never swore. Seriously, Herbie never used profanity. Okay. And and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we had beaten the Soviets and so we're in the locker room 
first of all, the time between the winning the Soviet game and, and the start of the Finnish game was probably 36 hours, but it was, it took forever to get there. And um, it was a Sunday morning, 11 o'clock and Herbie walked in and he paced back and forth. And he looks at us, says nothing, just paces back and forth. And he finally said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your fucking grave. He turned, walked to the door, turned back and said, your fucking grave. That's all he said. Well, we're down two to one after two periods. And he was so nervous. Now, Craig Patrick tells the story. He was so nervous. He said, Patty, I'm not going. I can't go in there. Go in there and, and, and talk to him. So Patty came in and he's trying to talk to us. And he said, Patty, get the hell out of here. There is no way we're losing this game. And to a man, we said that in unison. Just get the hell out of here. So Patty tells a story. He walks out and Herbie said, how did it go? He says, I think they're ready. And then, the, you know, Phil scored the time goal, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I scored the winning, winning goal. I don't know how much time was left. And then Mark Johnson added a fourth and the rest is history. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing about that one is you scored the goal to put you up 3-2. I think there's just over 10 minutes to go. Uh, give or take 10 minutes. Yeah. Maybe, it's, maybe it's 12, whatever. And it, it's feeling a little bit like the game two nights prior where, you know, it's a one goal lead, you know, yep. under 10 minutes, you know, oh my God, this is taking forever. And then you guys take a penalty. Yeah. And with, with four minutes to go, you're going to be man down in a three, two game with everything riding on the outcome. And, uh, and I guess Herb, and, and we'll go back and talk about the Russia game in a second, but we might as well finish talking about Finland. I guess Herb had gotten on Kristoff and Broughton a little bit before that game. You know, come on, guys, where is it? You know, I need to see something from you, too. And he puts them out there on the penalty kill and they're dogs. They just think Finland in and Finland can't get out of their own zone. Yeah. I think Broughton forces a turnover. Kristoff gets it on his stick, feeds Johnson, shorty, goal. And now it's over. Now the party can begin. Herbie had a knack. Yeah. Know, he just had a knack. Um, I think one of Herbie's greatest strengths was. He had the ability to get his players to play at their highest level at the most important time. Yeah. Not just on the Olympic team, but at the University of Minnesota. And he won three NCAAs and came in second on another one out of seven years. So he, he just knew how to get her done. Yeah. And when, and when you scored your goal in the Finland game uh, to make it three, two, and, and, and basically, like I said, you know, that was the game winner. That that play, you get the puck, Johnson feeds you, and you kind of come around the left, but well, I guess it's technically the right pipe. You come around, and there's like a hesitation for a split oh. second, and the goalie starts to go down, and you just get right under his legs. Um, what was that feeling like? What what like what was going through your mind at the time? Originally, I was I was off the goalie's left, the right post, as you said, and I was originally thinking Eric Strobel was on the other side, on the other side of the net. I was going to slide it across. But Paley Lindbergh kicked his leg open, so I just rifled it five hole. And because of the hesitation, because I was actually looking to pass, that created the opening, and then I just fired it. Yeah. And and then I looked at Mark. We knew then there's no way. Yeah. There's no there's, way. There's like a split second where the two of you just like stare at each other. It's like like a moment frozen in time. The two of you are behind the net, you like stare at each other, and it's like that moment of recognition. Like I think this is happening. And then and to, to go back for a second to the Russia game. So obviously it's a very tight game and they're, you know, they're, they're taking a lot of shots and Jim's obviously Jim Craig's obviously, you know, kind of stuffing them. Um, 
they're up 2-1. And there's that play right before the end of the first period. And, you know, we all know that there's such thing as momentum. And there's just the random long shot. I think it was Christian took David it. Christian just dumped it in. Yeah, and, dumped and it in. Soviet stopped playing and Magic kept going. And he yeah. scored with a second left. They literally stopped skating. Yeah. And, and he just comes in and, you know, it's one thing to be on the ball. It's another thing. Then you have to finish. Right. And then well, he, he could finish. He was, he was our, like I said, he was our magic. He was hands down our best player. Yeah. And, and, and from there, then they come out in the second period and they switch goalies and we looked at each other and, and even Herbie made a comment that they, they took out trade Jack, you know? And so what happened? They outshot us 12 to two in that period. Hard to argue with that you know, coaching decision, even though Trachak didn't obviously didn't like it. But once again, we had to come back in the third period and um, was it, I think magic scored the tying goal. Um, yep. Yep. Johnson scored the tying goal yep. early in the third. Yep. And, and, and then within like a minute or two, it's like within two minutes, Aruzioni scores the goal. So the Rizzo scored with exactly 10 minutes to go. So if anybody who hasn't been to Lake Placid, now they've seen since redone it a little bit, but you walk into the lobby and they have a face of the scoreboard with the USA four, Russia three. And if I'm not mistaken, the time on the clock is 10 minutes. It was, it was exactly 10 minutes when Rizzo scored the goal. Um, and a, another thing that every player will tell you to a man, those 10 minutes were the longest 10 minutes of my life. The clock wouldn't move. It yeah. was torture i mean and and the soviets did things that they never did they dumped the puck in they 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 missed the puck would roll over their stick when they were shooting uh it was unbelievable the kind of breaks that we got i mean i would argue that we were the better team only on the score sheet right uh, they were without question they dominated the game oh yeah when, when you're watching that end i mean there are so many times where it seems like they're about to put one in, you know, there's like yeah. a backhander where the guy seems to have half a net empty and he shoots wide left. Shoots it wider, rolls over a stick blade. It's just, it's amazing. It's really, yeah. it's unbelievable. And Jimmy did play well, but, and I guess you could say to, to a degree, we defended. Okay. I mean, we gave him chances, but hell out of the Soviets. Yeah. And and then the shocking thing is Tikhanov doesn't pull the goalie. He's never in that position where he has to. Right. I don't know if he choked or it's just not part of I don't story. think he was prepared for it. Yeah. He, he so, never had to do that before. And Herb is is saying short shifts, short shifts. I want fresh legs out there constantly. But then you watch like the last minute and change and you, you guys couldn't get off. It's your line. It's you, Silk, yeah. and then Morrow and Ramsey and the five of you could not get off. And that's a long shift in any hockey. Uh, you watch that last minute or so. Nobody wanted to touch the puck because we didn't want to be the one to screw it up. So right. it was hot, and the puck was a hot potato, and and we just tried to get it the hell out of the zone, and and it just took us a while. We kept it on the outside, which was that's that's a key to defending, but we didn't do a particularly great job in maintaining possession. Yeah, there was one point where. I, you've got the puck in the far corner up against the board. I'm thinking you're going to like try to, you know, get it up with your foot and just kill. I wanted seconds. nothing to do with that puck. I literally, <laughs> I think I flipped it back behind me thinking Mo was there. I, I seriously did not want to be the one to screw up. Yeah. And I guarantee you that's what every one of us was thinking. Yeah. 
And it's, and it's great because when when Al Michaels is doing the countdown, as you're watching, yeah. you know, do you believe in miracles? Mar, he, you know, it's Morrow up to Silk, and it kind of catches Silk in the stomach almost. And you yep. see him like, bat it down, and he gets it across the blue line, and you're the last guy to touch it. You kind of get there, and I don't know if you swipe it down the ice or not, but you're the last guy. You just kind of bat it one time, and it's over. It's over. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it's still uh, – it, it, it it's hard to believe we're still talking about it. Yeah. Oh, it's, and I, I, you know, it is, it is very much you know, tough. The movie resurrected a lot of things, it, you know, it kept the story alive, but the one thing that young kids today don't know, and there's no reason they should or could is, is just where the U S was psychologically in those days. And, and, you know, long gas lines and high inflation and, uh, the country was in a bad way. Uh, we had no confidence. We had some military failures and you had the hostage crisis. That was a disaster. And then we came along. I mean, never has a team or, you know, an athlete or a, you know, a, a group of athletes met the moment. Yeah. Right. That, that like you guys did. That's the way we I didn't know. We didn't know uh, the impact we were having. It was a different era. I mean, ESPN just started in November of 1979. So you had CBS, NBC, uh, and ABC, plus public TV. That, those are the only networks you had before ESPN came on. And you didn't have cell phones, so you relied on the newspapers. Well, that right. was news the next day, right? And, and you know, today, if you don't get immediate answers, something's wrong. And it was just a different era hell, if we had done this in today's environment, none of us would have to work for the rest of our lives. But right. Well, and that's another thing, speaking of different eras, like think about that. That game was played at five, the Russia game was played yeah. at five o'clock on a Friday night. And most of the country had no idea when they tuned in at 7.30 or eight, what the outcome was. Obviously, ABC was never- made a decision to tape delay the broadcast. I don't know why, but they did, they made that decision. So the only feed that got it live and showed it live were the Canadian broadcasters. Right. So if you lived in the northern part of the U.S., you had access to that feed and you could see the game live. But anybody else in the rest of the United States, it was taped away. Yeah. I mean, most Americans, because you didn't have social media, you didn't have cable, like you said, most Americans had no idea until, you know, 10 o'clock at night, not 730 at night, uh, which is still just amazing to me. And it's amazing. I mean, the, the impact you guys had. And and I'd love to you know pick your brains for a minute or two on your pro career. But the impact you guys had. In the 17 years leading up to 1980, not one single U.S. high school player was picked in the NHL draft. Forget about first round, not picked. Two years later, almost 20% of the draft was U.S. high school guys. I think it was like 49 out of 252 or, you know, something like that. And, you know, and, and you know, kind of starting with you guys, it wasn't a surprise to see three or four Americans on a roster instead of one. Um, and it was a, we broke down a lot of barriers of entry, and so to speak, in that respect. They, you know, the NHL was very much a Canadian game because of our success. It opened up a lot of eyes for a lot of people. And, you know, Jeremy Roenick will talk to this day that we gave him we gave him that opportunity because of yeah. what we did. Billy Guerin, who's the general manager of the Minnesota Wild, talks about what we did and how it. he wanted to be a hockey player. And yeah. he played 1,600 games and played 17 or 20 years in the NHL. So, Pat LaFontaine. 
I read yeah, about Pat, it. Pat LaFontaine. I mean, the, the, the list is endless. So it's, you know, we're very proud of what we did. Um, it wasn't always an easy time. And, and playing in the NHL, we weren't always welcomed. We were, you know, there were a lot of guys that didn't want us there and did what they could to keep us out. But, and well, so then the Olympics end. And within like a couple of days, a bunch of you guys, you know, but most of you guys had been drafted and a bunch of you within like three days were in the NHL. Um, you were up in Buffalo and, you know, speak, speak of, you know, looking at your, you know, kind of career, obviously at the U and the Olympic team, you're playing for Herb. You go right into playing for Scotty Bowman in Buffalo on a really good team. Um, they were the second best team in the league that year. Um, and you step right into a, a role and uh, you guys go, you know, a couple rounds into the playoffs. What was playing for Scotty like, you know, 10 minutes after playing for Herb? He was, he was uh, obviously wildly successful. I don't think he, for me, wasn't a great game tactician. He was kind of crazy behind the bench. Um, I look back at that. The, one of the mistakes I made in my career was I should not have played that year. Once the Olympics were done, I should have just stopped and waited until the training camp in the fall because I was fried. I was mentally fried, physically fried, and I wasn't ready for that next step. I just, I, and so I, I played, but I was, I just didn't, I was tired. So that, that's one thing, but playing for Scotty, obviously he was very successful. Buffalo, my first game there, there's a, guy, a player, Gilbert Perot was in the hall of fame. Richard Martin's a left wing, uh, I believe we played St. Louis and we beat him four, nothing or something like that. But Rico scored four goals and, and Jaber Perot had four assists. And that was my first game in the NHL. And it was, they were phenomenal. I mean, hall of fame players for sure. And, and that was a reason why. So that was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a really good team. Yeah. Really good team. Yeah. And we ran into the Islanders. That's when, you know, Mo went to the Islanders and ended up winning the first of their four cups in a row. Yeah, he had hell of a spring. <laughs> he was yeah. gold medal, and three months not, later, he's got a bad career. career. Yeah. Um, and then, and so you play for Buffalo. You also play for Roger Nielsen there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go to Hartford. And the one I noticed there was, I mean, obviously, and, and I'm actually curious about that. You go to Hartford. You have been a winner at Moundsview. You've been a winner at Minnesota. Obviously, the Olympics, even Buffalo for your two years there, you know, year and a half there. You go to Hartford, man, that's a totally different gig. You guys are, you know one of the worst terrible. Teams. yeah they were terrible. and what does that do to a psyche of a of a player i was there for a cup of coffee um you know it wasn't a very good team we had some good players mike rogers was there blaine stoughton was there i mean the two really really good players yeah young um, ron just, francis ron francis his rookie year he was there yeah. um we just weren't good and, and um so they put me on waivers and and the rangers picked me up i was literally there for probably less than a month Okay. And the Rangers, the Rangers picked me up and Craig Patrick talked to me and said, you know, we're going to send you to Binghamton right away. Um, I was, I was in Binghamton for maybe a week and they called me up and then, and he put me with uh, Mark Pavlich and Ron Duguay and we clicked right away. Yeah. Pav, and I, Pav and I clicked right away. And, and um, in those days there was a cartoon group called the Smurfs and all little guys. Well, we, we were the Smurfs. The Rangers were the Smurfs. You had Anders Hedberg and, and Pav and uh, Ray Lennon from Finland. Um, and I, you know, just little, but we could all skate. We could scoot. And that's why we always were very successful against the Flyers because they, they were big and maybe strong, but they could not move. And we just buzzed them. 
Yeah. And then, and unfortunately that was when the Islanders were speaking yeah. of a bull saw they, the Islanders were tough. They took you guys out of the playoffs a couple of years in a row. They could Islanders could play any style you wanted. They could play a high scoring affair. They could play a tight defensive game. You wanted to play a rough and ready and rumble. Well, you know, you had Clark Gillies and Bobby Nystrom and they, they had players for every kind of game and they, they were tough. They knew how to win. Yeah. I remember seeing something, I think it was Gretzky talking about when the Oilers the first year they made it to the cup and they lost and they said that, you know, they're, they're walking out of the arena and they're expecting to pass by the Islanders locker room and see champagne and celebration and everything. And they just see everybody with ice packs walking around quietly, yeah. even though they've just won the cup. And they were like, okay, we have work to do. We need, we need to get to that point where we can yeah. be like that physical and, and, and on that team. So yeah, so Craig Patrick is the GM. Herb is the coach. You're playing with Pavlich. Silk is on the team. Yeah. Uh, at least I think the first year you're there. Bill was there. Bill Baker's on the team. I mean, you guys hang out. Is like, how does that work? Or you I, know, I was married at the time. Um, okay. We didn't really hang out. We'd go to practice. I'd go home. Uh, when we were on the road, we'd hang out. Um, you know, we'd go out in groups. Yeah. Um, I, I was usually at the rink and I did my stuff and then I'd, I'd get out of there and try to get a break. Right. Right. Um, and then the next year you're down in Tulsa and you, you only play a couple of games. And then, so I went to training camp the following year. I was candidly, I was shocked. They sent me down, but they, they brought in a couple of young Swedish players. Okay. That one, that one truly blew me away. And and there was no forewarning at all. They called me back up for the rest of the year. And I, I, you know, I played sparingly and I obviously had lost my confidence. So then uh, during the summer of 84, I'm working at Morgan Stanley on Wall Street because I always knew I needed a second. I, I wasn't going to play hockey forever, and we didn't make the money they're making today, so I had to get a, a second life. Yeah, you know, and my parents taught me you got to have Plan B. You can't have, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You got to have options. So, I received a phone call from a writer from the New York Post. I don't recall his name, but he asked me about the trade, and I said, "What trade?" Hmm. Now, Craig Patrick was a GM, Herbie was a coach, and neither one of them called me to tell me I had just been traded to Detroit. Mm. So um, I called Patty, talked to him, and, and then I ended up calling, uh, talking to Jimmy Devolano, who was the general manager of Detroit. I said, we're about ready to go back to Minnesota. Can we send some stuff to Detroit and come out later in the summer to look for a place to live? He said, fine. So that was in late June, late July, we're the day before we're to fly to Detroit to find a place to live. I got a call from Devilano. He said, Rob, you've been, I got some news. You've been traded to Vancouver for Dave Tiger Williams. Um, and so I started laughing and my wife at the time just looked at me and said, what, you get traded again? And I just shook my head. Yes. So we had all half our stuff was in Detroit and storage. We had to get that. And then I ended up going to training camp in Vancouver Harry Neal had just hired a legendary junior coach by the name of Bill LaForge and legendary in the fact that he was, I would categorize him as a goon coach and you, you just had to fight. Well, I, I'm 5'10 and, uh, you know, playing weight was a buck 85 with clothes. On. I mean, there's that, I just didn't fit the profile. Right. And so I went to training camp, just didn't work out. And I said, I'm done. I just, I, I lost the drive. And when you don't have the passion for it, not just in hockey, but in anything, there's going to be somebody else that's going to want, that's going to take it away from you. They just are. So I just said, I'm done. And I went and uh, moved to Chicago and started working on wall street. 
Oh man. Well, Rob, I, I have to, you know, first of all, I have to say, you know, first of all, thank you for taking the time to speak. I mean, it's just fascinating hearing about, you know, growing up in Minnesota and, you know, playing the youth hockey and at Mounds View, obviously the successful years of the Gophers um, and, and, you know, the Olympic team, just, you know, fascinating, you know, to this day to hear, you know, all about it. Um, I saw this, which just, which really struck me, I guess about four months after you guys win the, um, uh, the gold medal. Herb writes a handwritten letter to every one of the 20 guys on the team. Under separate cover, you'll be receiving a laminated uh, team picture from Craig and myself. This reflects our complete respect we have for you as an athlete and as a person. I feel respect is the greatest reward in the world of sport, and you have earned that from the coaching staff. Personally, this year was not only the most enjoyable year in coaching, but also my toughest. Toughest because it involved making so many difficult decisions regarding the makeup of our final team. Because of that, and because I wanted to be as objective as possible, I stayed away from the close personal contact with you. I did not want U.S. hockey community to say that regionalism or favoritism entered into my final selections. He goes on a little bit and he says, you met all the challenges I laid out and you conquered them. If there was any team I wanted to identify with on a personal basis, this was that team. Hopefully that day will come respectfully Herb Brooks. I don't, I remember, I have the, the, the frame, the laminated uh, team picture. I don't remember the letter, um, but that's exactly what, that's what he would write. But even in that writing, it's somewhat, I don't want to say impersonal, but it's, Herbie had a hard time getting, getting really friendly. Um, and the sad thing about that, it, quite honestly, is as we were, you know, right as he passed away, we were starting to break down that barrier and he was starting to become one of us where we could give him a hard time and, and laugh about it. And, and he was going along with that. And that's the, the saddest part is that we, we couldn't grow or develop that part of the relationship because of his car accident. But, you yeah. know, as I said earlier, uh, I've played for a lot of great coaches. I played for Scotty Bowman, um, Herbie for, for Rob McClanahan, Herbie was the best coach I've ever played for. And, and as I said, the reason he wasn't easy, he was really hard to play for, but he got you to play at your highest level at the most important time. He knew how to get the best out of his players. And I, you know, at his funeral, there were hundreds of former players that were there. And for that very reason. Well, Rob McClanahan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, love hearing all the stories about, you know, growing up in Minnesota, the Mounds U years, the, the, the years at the U, obviously the Olympic team and your NHL career, um, every bit of it fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Chasing Hardware. Well, it, Rich, thank you. Um, it's a very easy subject for, for all of us to talk about. It's a, it's a you know, it's a feel-good story. It, it, you know, we don't walk around like we own the joint, but it's one where each player on that team is extremely proud of what we accomplished. And we truly enjoy sharing what we learned from that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, we can't get enough of it. <laughs> and thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.